This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Obviously, I'm not Joe Nesbo. I'm Lee Randall. I'm just going to put on my middle-aged person's glasses. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction. And then I'm going to ask you to give it up for Joe. Um, Joe has sold 40 million copies of his books in 50 languages. I'm not surprised that the room is full. Um, Though he came from a family of storytellers, he didn't start out to be a writer. And when he was 17, he was a football star playing in the Norwegian equivalent of the Premier League. Um, Unfortunately, injury ended his career two years later. He spent three years in the Air Force, and while he was there, he swatted his way through the high school curriculum, and he earned the grades to get him into university. Then he enrolled in the Norwegian School of Economics and Business Administration, and after he graduated, he was a financial analyst by day and a rock star by night. Uh, In 1997, he published his first novel, The Bat. He'd been asked to write a story about life as a touring pop star, but decided that that was boring. Boring. Um, But he wrote a crime thriller instead, and obviously he made the right call. It won the Riverton Prize for the Best Norwegian Crime Novel and the Glass Key Award for the Best Nordic Crime Novel. His third novel, The Red Breast, was based on his father's war experiences, and it examined why people make the choices that they do. That won the Norwegian Booksellers Prize in 2000 for Best Novel of the Year, and six years later became his first novel translated into English. Since then, there have been 11 Harry Hole novels, there have been children's books, and there are more crime novels written under the pen name Tom Johansson. Meanwhile, elsewhere in publishing, Hogarth Press has been doing an ongoing Shakespeare project where they invited novelists to reimagine some of Shakespeare's plays. Apparently, when they approached Joe, he said, only if I can have Macbeth. (laughs) Now, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because one reviewer wrote, each of Nesbo's Harry Hole books builds up layers of complexity and contradiction in his character to show the moral ambiguities faced by the arbiters of justice. Um, This Macbeth was translated by Don Bartlett. It is a blood-soaked tale of political ambition within a corrupt police department in a grim and lawless town. Duncan, in this version, is an idealistic chief commissioner who vows to clean up the streets, and he promotes the SWAT commander, Macbeth, to be the head of organized crime. Duff, not McDuff, Duff, heads up a narcotics unit, but he has his eye on the better job, and even though he grew up with Macbeth in an orphanage, their friendship is now a rivalry. Macbeth's partner, Lady, is a mesmerizing older woman who runs a very swanky casino called Inverness. (laughs) Banquo is his mentor and took him in as a child. And in this telling, am I pronouncing this right? Hecate? Hecate? Right, thank you. Is a man and the town's untouchable crime lord who peddles an addictive drug called brew. So let's welcome Joe to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. read that your relationship to this text, Macbeth, was much more through Roman Polanski than through William Shakespeare. Mm. Is that true? What, how did that come about? Uh, well, it was, I think, in my 
1970. Uh, the film was out, and I was 10 years old at that time. Um, so it was like uh, Shakespeare wasn't that big in Norway when I grew up. <laughs> um, he um, he was we'd heard about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would see him on British TV, yeah. but it wasn't something that you were exposed to when you're uh, in school. Um, and uh, we were more focused on on our own writers, I guess Ibsen, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, um, but my mother was a um, uh, was a librarian, and so I, after having seen the movie, and I was, you know, just totally fascinated with the with the story and the and the character in the in the Roman Polanski movie. Uh, I actually was able to get hold of uh, of the play. Mm-hmm in English and I read two pages and realized I don't understand one word here. <laughs> um, Neither so did we. We have to be taught exactly, how to read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, uh, but I kept looking for, uh, for a translation and it was one of my favorite writers, Andre Bjerke, he had translated a lot of the Shakespeare plays but not Macbeth. Mm-hmm. So it took me some time actually before I I got hold of a translation, and then I then I read the whole story at at a quite young age, and it wasn't hip. It wasn't like anything I would tell my friends. Uh, played in bands, so that I played soccer with. That I was reading Shakespeare. You know, it wasn't uh, wasn't considered cool, I guess. And uh, well, reading wasn't considered cool. So uh, really, uh, no. So so um, it, it wasn't until later that I. That I reread, I tried to reread it in English at the age of 25. I thought that by now my English is good enough so that I can read it. So I had another go at the English uh, version. I read four pages, couldn't st- <laughs> still couldn't understand the word. I had to put it away again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously, so you chose it for this. And did did it have a lot of resonance with with because it's about crime and there's a murder, or, or was that not really the reason? I think it, was, it just felt very modern, the fact that um, that Shakespeare did what they now do in TV series is to have to manipulate you uh, mm-hmm. as a uh, as a reader to sympathize with a character. I mean, that's what they do in uh, Breaking Bad, for example. It's uh, uh, and and of course Shakespeare know that. Uh, when we have emotionally made a choice, it's really hard to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 if you look at the Bible, uh, uh, that does the same thing with with uh, David. I mean, they have first you have a, have him in a fight fighting Goliath, and and so we decide this is our guy, mm-hmm. and so he beats Goliath, and then later on in the story, when um, when he is sending. Urias to war so he will get killed so he can get his wife. Mm-hmm. We are still struggling to find excuses for David. Now if you had just, I mean technically as a storyteller, just reverse the order of those two stories. So first he sent Urias to war. Then we would probably hope that Goliath would win would that win, yeah. fight with uh, with David. Yeah. But um, so and and that's what Shakespeare does with uh, Macbeth. You know, we, we we are willing to really try to understand him, and to uh, and it's painful to to 
when you're caught on the wrong side and it's uh, like how much can you excuse how, how far are you willing to go it's I mean it's uh, it's modern storytelling it's um, American Psycho same thing it's the trick you do there is you you use a first person nar uh, narrative mm -hmm. and I don't know about you I, I don't know if you read American Psycho but for me it was the most shocking thing was when the police was getting closer to catching him, I was worried. <laughs> and then you realize, what? what? I'm, I'm, I'm worried that they will catch a serial killer. You know, it's, uh, but it's just a trick that you, you do and it's as if you don't have any defense uh, towards that. And uh, I, I guess that is why I was so fascinated with, mm. with Macbeth. I was really trying to make excuses and to understand why he's doing what he's doing. Well, let's talk about that because you give the characters really complicated, deep backstories. Lady, we'll talk about Lady maybe a little bit later because her backstory is horrific. You can't believe she goes through what you put her through in, in her past. But t let's talk about Macbeth's backstory because he's orphaned, he's a, dr he's a former drug addict. Hmm. Um, you know, all things that... Now, did you make him a drug addict to sort of explain away some of his hallucinations later in the thing? Uh, or, or were well, there other reasons? Uh, partly, but also partly because I, um, the problem with, uh, with Macbeth, not only for me, but, but uh, for Shakespeare scholars as well, uh, the problem is, uh, is the three witches, right? <laughs> uh, how, yeah. how did... Yeah. Why are there this supernatural element in the story? Does the story really need that supernatural, uh, supernatural element? And uh, and I read that uh, some something that you know in the first version of Macbeth there were no three witches that they would put in later to mm -hmm. to please the king because he was uh, he was uh, he liked supernatural elements so it was there to please him. Uh, I don't know. But know about that and 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 somehow you get the feeling okay okay so it's uh uh so we put him in there because it's to make things add up mm -hmm. so i and i realized i tried i actually tried to write the story without the three witches um because i don't see i don't see macbeth as like the perfect story mm -hmm. it's not technically it's not perfect but I also realized it's the reason why it's considered a masterpiece because every time I tried to change it, <laughs> it sort of fell together. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, okay, this is probably um, a good story, so let's not change <laughs> too much here. Uh, and uh, uh, in the end, the way I see it, I followed the play more or less... Uh, scene by scene, act by act. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's all there. I just added some stuff, but even the things I added, it's there. It's, um, it's as if there's, a, there's that possibility mm -hmm. in the story. Um, and there are even the way I read Macbeth, there are some pointers. Uh, and, uh, and I just following uh, uh, the pointers, really, uh, to the background story of the, of the characters. Um, Can you describe a little of the backstory you've given Lady? Because it's quite complicated with the, the baby and... Yeah, of course, there, there is that 
that uh, uh, monologue or dialogue uh, where Lady Macbeth uh, is, uh, is, is trying to persuade Macbeth to, to, to kill Duncan. And she says that um, she would be, she would take her baby, the breastfeeding baby, uh, uh, from a breast and, and, and smash the baby's head against the wall. So I figured, okay, that's quite a strong image. And it's, it's as if, how would she come up with that image if that didn't actually happen? Mm-hmm. So, and if that happened, if she killed her baby, why would she have to, at some point in her life, kill her baby? So it's all imagining around those few sentences. Yeah. Uh, that is one of the, what I call Shakespeare's pointers to, right. to, to right. background. So in my story, she grew up in a home um, uh, where she would be sexually abused by her father, uh, very poor home, mm-hmm. and she would get thrown out, and then she would survive uh, by uh, working as a prostitute. And um, she, at some point, she would get uh, pregnant, but she was she was destined to survive, and she knew she couldn't survive with a baby. So she would be she would have the courage and the strength to kill her own baby in order to uh, to survive, and she did. And her goal, what is driving Lady Macbeth, is to gain the respect that she didn't get when she mm-hmm. was younger. She is um, she's making money. She, uh, she opens a bordello first, yeah. and uh, then later on to get respect. And, and that is when she gets to know a lot of the politicians mm-hmm. and the police officers in this corrupted city. And she uses that to, um, to open um, the casino, which is the... Um, the, the, the posh casino. There are two casinos in the yeah, city, yeah, yeah. and this is the posh one. So she is sort of overcompensating for her uh, past, and she is becoming this respectable yeah. woman. A very and then she meets a businesswoman. Yeah, yeah, she's a businesswoman. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so um, in this story, as in the in the, in the play, um, it's an open question: who is the real ambitious one, whether it's Macbeth or Lady Macbeth, and whether Lady Macbeth is pushing Macbeth over the edge, or if Macbeth is asking her indirectly to push him, because he needs that push, yeah, and they are the equally, equally ambitious. Yeah. It's fascinating. I was, I was just kept thinking, oh, these backstories are so in-depth and so that you'd given it so much thought about the motivation of something that's not explained in the, in the original. But um, I read that you usually spend a year or more creating an outline, so here it was, not only did you have the play, you had the outline already, but you also knew how it ended. Do you always know whether, how your books are going to end? Yeah, I, uh, I do, so yeah. actually... Working on Macbeth was, uh, like you said, I already had an outline. And normally, I, when I work on a novel, I will write first a long synopsis for the story and then a really long synopsis for the story. So I like to have the feeling that when I write chapter one, 
um, and I start writing the novel that I can sort of, you know, tell my readers, come sit closer because mm -hmm. I have this great story to tell you and I know exactly where we're going. So, so trust me. Yeah. I, I like that as a writer and also as a reader mm -hmm. uh, that I can tell that, okay, uh, the writer has a plan. The yeah. story is already in place. It's uh, it's there. So uh, in many ways, the, the the only thing that was different was that this time I had this synopsis written by this guy William, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. and 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 so that's probably also why it was so easy to to follow the story scene by scene and and um, act by act. Yeah. But that's um, that, that's something you did all your life as a kid, wasn't it? I I read that you and your your family, you would, it was like competitive storytelling, that you would tell each other stuff and it was, it was almost a contest who could tell the most captivating story. Yeah, well, uh, when I was a kid, me and my brothers, we would, be, we would kind of be the audience and the, and the grown-ups, my, my uncles and aunts, they would meet for you know, Christmas holidays or uh, summer holidays and, and they would retell the stories that we had heard before, which was about members of the family. Oh, or so the family stories, not traditional? No, uh, mostly it would be like uh, uh, true stories, or more or less true stories. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, some of the stories, we wouldn't quite get the, the finer points of the story, but, uh, um, but we did understand that it, it wasn't all about the punchline, that it was... Uh, how to get there mm -hmm. and and you know characterizing the characters in the uh, in the story and the story would always it, it would never be exactly the same so they would develop the story and take it in slightly <laughs> other directions but that was of course the amazing thing that you could retell a story over and over it was almost like singing a song you know you could mm -hmm. improvise and you could take it somewhere else um, and I think that was sort of my my writing school was just listening to my relatives and my, my parents telling stories. Yeah, because, uh, you know, obviously your career trajectory was not obviously where you've ended up. Was, it's not an obvious destination given your past. So let's talk about the setting because it's sort of real but not real. You call mm. it Fife, but, but the geography's not quite precise. Yeah. And it does seem to have its own hideous microclimate where it's always gloomy and rainy there, um, yeah. which is not like Fife, we know. Um, so how do you envision, is this Scotland, is this Norway, is this Newcastle? I read that it might possibly be Newcastle. Somebody yeah, said it's, it's, it's Glasgow. It's, it's, it's a combination, of course, the names are taken from the uh, play, so it's around here. Um, and it, it's it's partly it's Newcastle from uh, the movie from the 70s Get Carter with Michael Caine, uh, which was I I just like the the visual of that movie that mm -hmm. is that it's gray and dark in black and white, mm -hmm. um, and you have so it's that kind of city an uh, industrialized city uh, with uh, unemployment and uh, and corruption and drugs and uh, and uh, criminal gangs uh, but it's also um, a Norwegian city Bergen 
which uh, there's actually a writer from Bergen that I met just before I went on stage who has been writing um, a, a series of books about Bergen mm-hmm. and that I read when I moved to Bergen and I studied there. And they have even worse, worse weather than you have here in Scotland. Uh, it's, the city is famous for, um, for, uh, because it's raining there, you know, mm-hmm. constantly. I can remember the first time, the first year I spent there. I, I, I came, I arrived in August, and I can remember waking up in my room in the middle of the night in mid-October, and I had no idea why I had woken up. But then I certainly realized because for the first time since I got there, it was silent. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't hear the rain on the roof. Yeah. And uh, so, and it also has, has this um, uh, microclimate that you can drive through a tunnel and mm-hmm. you're out at Sutra, which is an island outside Bergen, and, and suddenly the sun is shining. So Sutra is uh, five in, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, uh, in, in, in this story. So I sort of combined this, uh, yeah. these cities and, 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 and made this place which doesn't really have a name. Yeah. It's just a city and then it's capital, which is, um, of course, the capital in this uh, country, which mm-hmm. is London in, in, um, in Macbeth. Yeah. Now, you, you also drew on... I read that you were inspired by the Basketball Diaries by Jim Carroll as well. Yeah. Now, how does that work? Because this book is set in around 1970, isn't yeah. it? So you've moved it up from Shakespeare's time, but not up to our time. Yeah, I th- it's, it's set in the 70s, and I mean... Most of us probably think of the 70s as a time of optimism, uh, uh, summer of love, or that was probably in the 60s, but, but you know, the, the hippies, the, the great music, uh, and, uh, and uh, the world moving forward. But, but I, if you took a closer look at the 70s, it was, it was a time of pollution of the Cold War, people would wake up in the morning fearing uh, a nuclear war. Um, the big cities were, you know, uh, ridden by the, the crime wave, yeah. the big crime waves of the 70s. I mean, you can really walk around on, on Manhattan. Yeah. And and I read, uh, I'd, I mean, I was born in 1960, so I, didn't, I was too young to really experience the 70s. Um, but I, um, I read the Basketball Diaries, which is Jim, Jim Carroll reading a, uh, writing about young people playing basketball and, and having this junior league and, uh, in Manhattan, mm-hmm. which in his book feels so small, everybody knows each other, they will run into each other. And these youngsters, they are into rock and roll, they are into basketball, and they are into into drugs. drugs. So they are between the matches, they are shooting heroin. And it's just, uh, it's just a great but very dark atmosphere in the book. And um, I I actually, I met Paul Auster, and I asked him because he, he, uh, the American writer. He he grew up in in Manhattan in the yeah. in the seventies, and I said, "Have have you read Jim Carroll? You know the Basketball Diaries?" And he said, "No, no, 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 I haven't." Yeah, he's he's writing about basketball, and uh, Manhattan feels so small. It almost feels feels like a village. No, no, I never read that book. 
But, but, I, but I did play basketball with Jim Carroll. <laughs> 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 and so it just uh, goes to show yeah. that, yeah, public felt it like, yeah. uh, like that way. And Jim and, Carroll also and it, and, sang. And you also you said that the 70s was a grim time. It was a in grim the, time, in, yeah. the, in, the, in Manhattan. Yeah. yeah, and Jim also sang. He had, he had put out an album. Did you ever hear that? He did that song, People Who Died. Yeah. Yeah, people who died, died, and he just went on and on. Oh, yeah. that, that's the song? Yeah. yeah sounds yeah, great. Sorry. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, no, he sang great. it a little bit better than I do. No, but... <laughs> yeah. um, let's see what else I want to ask you. Um, so when you, when you were approached by the publisher, did they put any restrictions on what you could and couldn't do to Shakespeare? Or did they just say, go, be free, do whatever you like? Yes, they did. I, uh, I, I mean, I, I said that when he asked me, I said that uh, I, I want to have Macbeth. I'll do it if he, if he give me Macbeth, mm-hmm. and I have to do it my way. And uh, yeah, of course, I, I, I don't think they told any of the writers that was in on the project that how they wanted them to do it. And what the the, the notion of there's a famous phrase in English, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, mm. which seems to me to be very apt mm. for this book. Because in this book, power is both power and it's another drug. And yeah. In addition to brew, it's the mm. second thing that everyone's going to get addicted to. And, and it's just as corrosive mm. as a drug that you inject or snort or smoke. And I'm just wondering, do you, do you think anyone who seeks power that actively can ever... Um, come out unscathed? Or do you think it's always going to have that corrosive? I think what is interesting to see is when you see people in power end up being corrupted, when they don't really need the money or, or, or they are misusing the power, when you think that didn't these people start out being idealistic and, and, and really having a, a vision of what they wanted uh, to do to better the lives of their waters or mm-hmm. the population as a whole. And, and then they end up in a totally different place. And what, what happened along the way? Yeah. And I, I think that even if you ask people in power, which I had the opportunity to, to do from, uh, uh, from time to time to meet, and I ask them the same question. Does, mm-hmm. Do you get corrupted by, by power? And most of them say that, yeah, in my case, no. But in, more, <laughs> in, uh, but in yeah. other cases, yes, yeah. definitely. And it, and it just happens. And it's sometimes hard to tell exactly uh, when and, and, and how, but it does, it does happen. Um, Did you have any real... I mean, because it felt, it felt politically resonant with the current... You know, did did you ever picture any genuine, real-life people while you were thinking about your characters? Or yeah. <laughs> Who? <laughs> no, I. Uh, uh, needless to say, I think it's. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, some people. Okay, because you know, one of the things about crime fiction is that. It, it, it can, some crime fiction, not all writers do this, is it can show what's poison and evil in a society and then rectify it 
to make the readers feel happy at the end. Now, I'm not quite sure how happy I felt at the end because it felt like this, this society just could not be fixed. But, but you're not concerned about a, a neat, tidy ending, are you? No, I mean, uh, I stuck with Shakespeare's ending. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in many ways, this is, uh, of course, slightly different, but, but not really different at all. This is, uh, it's a... Uh, I mean, it's a sort of a spoiler in the title, uh, Macbeth, <laughs> the tra- Scottish tragedy. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah. It won't end with yeah, a it wedding. is. Yeah. This probably won't end well, well you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think? Do you believe in the concept of evil, or do you think that um, that's too cut and dry? That's too simplistic. That once we label something evil, we kind of we don't have to pay attention to it anymore. I think. For me, I think that the, the the problem is defining the word evil. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? What what is true evil? So I think is before you start discussing whether you believe in in evil or not, you have to sort of spend spend a couple of days trying to define exactly what what you mean by the word evil. Is it is it like the active evil of? Um, I mean, I was, I, I was traveling in um, in. Um, uh, in Congo um, uh, during the uh, uh, refugee crisis there, mm-hmm. or one of the many refugee mm-hmm. crises, and it was just after the Rwanda massacre, uh, so we traveled first through Rwanda and then to Congo, and uh, I was told a story about you know uh, the refugees uh, fleeing, and there would be somebody in the ditch who was too tired to, to, to keep on walking, so some other guy would go down in the ditch, and they, I mean, they were so hungry, but he would kick the guy in the ditch more or less to death before he kept going. And you would wonder, what kind of evil is that? Because you don't gain anything from that. You actually spend energy kicking somebody because you just this sudden anger or, or hatred, and then you keep, keep going. Um, and of course, there would be other stories from uh, from these uh, refugees, also of fathers, you know, uh, uh, picking up children and and carrying them with them. Kids, I mean, children they didn't know, and they would sort of risk the well-being of their own family, mm-hmm. have to sacrifice food to, to 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 save these children. But that is like the active evil. But then you have, of course, the more evil that we that we all get in touch with and that we can see within ourselves, which is sort of the absence of good, mm-hmm. which is sort of passive evil, things that we will let happen. So, um, and that we can see people who follow orders during, in, in, in wartime because that is the passive thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to a certain extent you can say that is it like evil? It's just the same as, as, as cold. It doesn't really exist. It's just um, absence of a warmth. An absence of empathy. Yeah, it's yeah. like molecules in a, in a, in space. It doesn't move. It's just that's the natural uh, uh, state of molecules. It doesn't move. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so evil is the natural state, and 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 then 
goodness is, uh, is the opposite. So we have to actually work it. Goodness. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm just a writer We're of just, fiction. And what we can do, I mean, it's, uh, I like it when, when, when people ask me questions, like big questions, and they want me to give answers, and they will actually listen to me just because I've written a few crime novels. Uh, and, and, but I'm, I'm, what we can do as, that you can do and I can do as writers of fiction, I think what we can do is ask interesting questions yes. and, and, and then bring this question to, to our readers and say, isn't it interesting? Let's think about this. What do you think? What do, what do we think? Uh, and, and then, but as soon as we start giving answers, I think uh, at least when I write, when I read uh, writers who are trying to give me answers, I tend to lose interest. Mm -hmm. I like the questions. I'm not too interested in the, in the, yeah. in the answers. I think the questions are more interesting because yeah. you can put yourself in the place and think, well, how would I deal with that? What would I do in answer to that question? Yeah. Um, violence. Let's talk about violence because I know that you've come under some fire from people for the level of violence and the descriptiveness of your violence. Um, but you keep putting it in there and it is very visceral and it's very I can see your book unfolding as if it was a film Gee, is, that, is that how it comes to you? because I know some people hear things for some people it's visual is it very very visual for you when you're writing? I think I, think, I mean uh, our generation of, of, of writers we, were, we are probably the first generation that grew up even though we were keen book readers, we probably saw more movies than mm. we read books. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's inevitable that we are um, that influenced by, by movies, the rhythm of the movies, and the, just the simple fact that you, that you, after you've written a chapter that with the action in a closed room during night, we tend to, if, if, if the next scene is a scene that could be, take place anywhere, we tend to put it outdoor mm -hmm. in daylight yeah. just to get a change, the visual change. You know, yeah. we, need, we, we need that, which is the same thing directors do, of course. So mm. uh, I think, and, and, uh, and the way we, we edit the scenes, the rhythm of the movie, it's, uh, it's uh, it just automatically we, uh, we do that. Mm. Uh, well, what do you say to your critics of, of, about the violence? Violence. Um, it was, I think... Um, I've commented on it uh, quite a few times. It was when I wrote um, uh, um, The Leopard. Um, there were a couple of... Uh, I can remember, I, th I think I was going to Denmark and, and where I was receiving a prize for that novel. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wrote a, um, a review by a Swedish journalist who was, he was furious about the level of... Uh, violence and he accused me of speculating in violence and just putting the violence in there for for the sake of violence and sort of just be sensational yeah, yeah exactly and as far as I, I i actually put up looked in my novel and and looked at a few pages and i realized that he was right really that i had i i had you know what can i say i probably just got gotten carried away by what I at that time thought was my ability to s describe uh, physical pain and, and, and uh, this horrendous torture scene. Now, ideally, 
I use, I think violence is important to describe, sometimes you need it to describe the monster, to, to, to explain to the reader what's at stake, why it is important that the hero of the story mm -hmm. will bring down the monster. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, it was, that had already been explained. And I kept going after that, right. so I, uh, I'd say I, I felt guilty, and uh, uh, I mean it was too late. It yeah. was, and it wasn't like I had, to, I should have deleted chapters or pages. It was, in my my opinion, just a few sentences here and there. Mm -hmm. But the sentences were there, and mm -hmm. uh, what can I say? I, I regret that. Um, uh, so I was actually worried, and this was like, I don't know, f six, seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So I was delighted with my, uh, uh, my agent just sent me the, uh, the same journalist's review of Macbeth, and he loved it. Oh, so, well, there you go. So, Vindicated. Uh, that, yeah, so this is just the right proportion of violence in yeah. this one. Now, there yeah. you go. It's perfect violence. It's <laughs> yeah. perfect. So we talked about power. I just want to... You've had such a phenomenal success. How do you deal with the fame? I mean, there are, it's sort of a cottage industry back home, isn't it, with tours and you can go view. I, I read that, I haven't been there, that you can go see places you know, that appear in the books. How do you deal with that level of fame? Can you walk down the street? Can you go get groceries? Uh, or have you got somebody to do that for you? The, the good thing about being a writer is, uh, is, is that they... They don't know your face. But you're not uh, just a writer, are you? I've, I mean, I've, I, I passed... You mentioned the groups that go uh, sightseeing. Yeah. I, only, I actually passed that. I was on my bicycle, <laughs> passing that group, looking at them, and they were looking at me, and can, can you please move me on a tour here? You know? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it's... Uh, and, and in all where people are polite, they, they, they leave you alone. And sometimes if I sit... I sit on, a, on my local coffee shop, and I... I, I sit there and I have to, you know, I have, to, I have to, like everybody else, I have to fight to get my favorite table uh, where I can sit to write. So it's like it's. Um, so you write at a at a coffee shop. Well, I, I have I have this beautiful apartment in in Oslo, and I had this um, with a with a room in the attic with a beautiful view of Oslo. Mm -hmm. I had a desk specially built and brought up there. They had to, you know, I don't know how they got it up there, mm -hmm. but they, it's, it's a big, big desk with a big computer. I have my espresso machine there. I have my music there. Uh -huh. And it's the only place in the world where I cannot write. <laughs> um, so what I do, I, and when I wake up in the morning, I go up to this beautiful room. I look at my desk, I take my laptop, and I walk to this small, <laughs> small coffee shop. And, and normally I, I'm not there so early, so my favorite table is taken. Um, so I will go sit opposite the person sitting at that table, <laughs> staring at this person <laughs> until she, he, she leaves. And then I can start uh, start working. So if you don't leave, yeah. I'll put you in my novel and I'll kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also heard, is it true that you're coaching uh, Knausgaard on how to write crime fiction? Or is that a 
hideous rumor. That that is like um, I don't know how that uh, how that internet. misunderstanding it true, right? happened. <laughs> it, it was he he runs a, uh, uh, a publishing company, a really small one, mm -hmm. and he called me and asked me if I uh, would would read for him. I mean, recommend books for him, and 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 he would send me some books and. Uh, uh, and uh, as we are both busy, so it, it it never happened. So I think that must have been uh, how that misunderstanding that some journalists picked up that yeah. we. Because uh, I was I was having quite a vision, you know, yeah. the two of you sitting there saying, "No, no, you do it like this." <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I never did that. We are we did go on a tour together though in uh, in Norway, the two of us. A book tour. Yeah, yeah. Did you do actual events together, or were you just on the same circuit? We, no, we we did a couple of events together, just because we found it interesting. So we are two so different writers. Yeah, yeah. very different. Mm. Um, I want to give the audience a chance to ask questions soon, but I just wanted to ask, can you talk a little bit about your charity work, your foundation? Because I think that's really, really interesting stuff that they're doing. And I wonder if you could tell the audience about it. Well, it's... It's simply that um, you know I, when I grew up I, I, I spent all my money traveling when I was a teenager um, and so I, I think that at a young age I, I realized that I come from a from an extremely privileged country uh, and uh, that just being born in Norway you had sort of won in the lottery mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that the, I mean, at at a certain point, you selling a lot of books. I, I I made a lot of money, and I realized that I I never wanted a, a yacht or a football team or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and and so I um, I figured it was time that I paid back. You know. Uh, so I put up a foundation uh, where we uh, uh, we are um, supporting uh, projects in third world countries uh, to learn children uh, basic uh, reading and, and writing skills. Because what I had learned from traveling was, of course, that in countries where where people can't really write, they really have no chance. They mm -hmm. really, you know, there's no way they can establish a working democracy in their countries. There's no way that they can um, get the kind of uh, standard of living that we have in, in Scotland and, uh, and Norway. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could, uh, and I also did some charity works where we focused on, on health issues, which is like the classic uh, uh, charity work. And and there are so many paradoxes in working with with health. I will not go into that. But I I realized that education would be mm -hmm. like my my uh, uh, my goal for 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 this um, foundation. So we are put up uh, right now. We have uh, uh, what would be the equivalent in. In uh, in pounds, what's what's the rate towards Norwegian kroner? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, well, fi uh, around uh, five million, five six million euros yeah. uh, in in foundation right yeah. now. So it's not like we are 
big or important, but we are, uh, but we are contributing every year yeah. um, uh, to this uh, foundation for, okay. for work like giving girls in India an education and not just one year of education, but putting them through uh, 10 years of, uh, of, of school so they can come back to the villages and be role models for, mm -hmm. for, for other girls. Um, yeah. That is, that's fabulous. Mm. That is fabulous. And it's, it, it, it's a beautiful completion of the circle because you sort of educated yourself while you were, because you didn't have good grades because you were playing football, and then you educated yourself so that you could better yourself as well. So it's a lovely circular, circular thing. Um, can, we, can we turn on the house lights? And we'll get to as many questions as we can. Um, I will ask that they please be questions, not statements of any philosophical ideas. Um, okay, I see a question right here. Um. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask, see when you've written your books. Um, hi. hi. <laughs> um, how does it feel handing it over to translators to put it into different languages? Does it feel, I don't know, like you're handing over your child or something? I don't know. How, you mean how it feels to have your to text have uh, translated? Uh, well, it's. Um, I think that uh, Don Bartlett over the years have, has done a terrific job with my my novels. That at least that's that's what people tell me. Uh, because I don't read the novels in the, in the English. Uh, although English is really important when you come from a small country uh, with a small language like Norwegian you are really dependent on your English translation because when you get translated into Korean, for example, they will use the English translation because it's, you can't find really a good translator who would happen to, to, to know Norwegian and Korean. Um, so, um, but the thing is, I, I read the first chapters of my first translation and I realized that things will get lost in translation. It's inevitable. And I also realized that I could not have done a better job of fixing that uh, than uh, Don Bartlett. So I decided I just have to trust Don uh, and uh, save myself the frustration of, of, uh, of reading what will get lost. Brilliant. Another question? Okay, there's a couple, there's three people down here, very keen. In theatros. Theatrical circles is perceived to refer to the title of the play by name as to bring down disaster in the production, so it's commonly referred to as the play. The Scottish play. Yeah. Do you have any problems referring to your book by name, or do you just call it the book? <laughs> I have uh, I have some active friends, and and they are like they are like. Uh, Joking when they are referring to to uh, the myth of uh, of accidents happening in the theaters when they are when they are doing Macbeth, so they are joking about that. And I ask them, "Yeah, but but I can hear you are joking about it. But do you call it Macbeth? No, we call it Scottish play. <laughs> <laughs> but you call it Macbeth. I do. You're yeah. okay with that? Yeah, I'm yeah. okay with that. So there were some more questions back. Oh, oh, wait. Somebody that has the mic. Yeah. Can I ask uh, what you're working on at the moment, and is Harry making a comeback? Uh, yeah, Harry will come back next year. It's a novel called Knife. Right. Uh, 
so he will be back uh, probably it will be published uh, in uh, here in Scotland and uh, in the UK um, uh, in summer June or something next year okay I see loads of waving hands up here I, I thought there were more over here but can we go up there oh sorry you explained that you've got this lovely big room in your attic with the big desk and all that, but you can't do your work in it. You have to go to this small coffee shop. And I look at, I remember from Hull that he's got this lovely big police station where he gets stuck in this tiny little room down in a dungeon somewhere where he does his best work. Is there a kind of parallel there in your head when you wrote that or was, there, or was that just coincidence? I don't know. It's a... Uh, I think that, you know, they say that all writers write about themselves. And, uh, and I think that's true. It's just that sometimes you're not aware of that. You know, it's... Uh, so, there are certain... I, I, I don't know if I uh, understood your question correctly, but if you're asking if there are similarities between me and Harry, was that it? His working area, his working area was this um, small room as such when he was if in. I need a small room to yes. write in so pretty much like you were in a small cafe yeah so you made him do his best work in a small room as well so yeah okay if game. I uh, okay um, I don't know I I can write anywhere really big rooms small rooms trains planes <laughs> air airports that's airports are uh, that's a perfect place for me to to, uh, to write I think I think maybe because I feel that it's like a bonus. You're waiting for a plane and you're riding. <laughs> like you're doing two things at the same time. Uh, so it feels like a bonus. So I'm, uh, I'm, probably, I'm probably the only one at the airport when, you know, when it comes up on the board that your flight is two hours delayed. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was another question here. Can I, ask a, here. can I ask a football question? Sure. If you had been playing football in 1981, would you like to have played for Norway on the 9th of September? That's 9th of September? It's, it, it sounds like they were badly beaten by Scotland or something. It's, uh... <laughs> oh, you beat England 2-1. Oh, yeah, yeah, at, at, at Ullevål. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm just a bit paranoid when it comes to Norwegian soccer, you know, it's... <laughs> Because I remember uh, we were talking about, we were talking about, um, uh, sorry about this, but uh, it was in the 60s when you lost 9-3 to, uh, to England. <laughs> Ever heard about that match? No? <laughs> uh, and, and, and the goalkeeper of Scotland had to, he, he mo had to move to Germany, I think. <laughs> and, and, and somebody met him there 10 years later. And, he's, uh, and, and, and he met a, uh, a fellow of... Uh, 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 Scott and he asked is it safe to come back home now <laughs> and the answer was no <laughs> and, and we, uh, we had in, uh, in Norway we had a similar experience in 1972 I think it was when we played um, Holland and this was a famous team that went on to nearly win the World Cup in 74 and uh, we played and it for me, I was a young kid, and was a, it was a very special game before because my my home team Molde we had for the first time in history three players in the in the national team, 
and um, they were they were all uh, playing. They were strikers playing forward, so they didn't see much of the ball. Um, <laughs> but uh, after the first half, uh, we were down one nil. And when Holland started scoring in the second half, they scored every fourth minute. <laughs> so uh, we lost nine nil. Uh, so um, yeah, that's probably why we're a bit paranoid. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, in, in England, I uh, uh, I remember that match. Yes, it was first time we uh, we ever beat England. Are there are there Last any questions too, over actually. here? No. Okay, then we'll stay over here. There, okay, there's a question back there, and then we'll come back. Hi, Joe. Yeah. Okay. Um, who are your favourite crime writers in, in, in kind of your own time? Do you tend to stick to crime or do you kind of go into other genres and read? Yeah, I, uh, uh, when I grew up, I actually I didn't read that much crime. I wasn't really, when I wrote my first crime novel, I, I wasn't that much into crime fiction. I was into crime in, in the movies, but I, I would read more like, I would be into, you know, Jack Kerouac and... Uh, Knut Hamsun, Norwegian writers, and uh, uh, Charles Bukowski, Ernst Hemingway. Um, but it was one crime writer, uh, Jim Thompson, who wrote during the 50s oh, and, yeah. and, and 60s, if you know yeah. what it was called. It was called a Dime Store Dostoevsky, and I think that's, for me, that was quite accurate. Um, he was a great writer, and he, in many ways, he would write The American Psycho 30 years before Bret Isnellis did so. Uh, he was just, he was like my, my, my favorite uh, crime writer. And actually also, um, um, actually also uh, um, um, Miller, uh, the, the, the graphic novels, uh, Frank Miller, who wrote uh, Sin City. He was, uh, uh, he made me start reading uh, graphic novels again. I just wanted to share with you a coda to that um, football match where Scotland lost 9-3. to three. Um, Apparently, one of the Scottish supporters' buses was seen driving away after the match with stuck in the back window a placard on which somebody had written, they couldn't make it 10. <laughs> yeah. I think there was somebody behind you who had a question. Was somebody else right here? Yes. Somebody there had a question. And that'll probably be our last question. Um, so we were actually wondering if you could maybe read your favorite paragraph from the book. Or just do a really short reading. My favorite paragraph from Macbeth. I have scribbled in it, don't be offended. That was how I, that's how I swatted uh, for, the, uh, for the event. I don't think I have a favorite paragraph. I, I, I never read from my... For my novels, but I will make an exception here. So, since you, the shiny raindrop fell from the sky through the darkness towards the shivering lights of the port below. Cold gusting northwesterlies drove the raindrop over the dried-up riverbed that divided the town lengthwise, and the disused railway line that divided it diagonally. Gonally. That's why I don't read. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm going to take this lovely man through those doors 
and into the next room where he's going to sign books which are on sale and which you can then get signed individually to your names. But before we go, can we just give it up one more time? Thank you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.